Well, our speaker today is no longer going to be introduced as a guest speaker because he's a part of the Eagle family. Kurt Sovine and I go back 20 plus years together. He served as a pastor at Connection Point Church in Danville. He's now, as you heard, on our district staff. He serves in a multiplicity of ways there. And then he and his wife, Kimberly, and their two girls have made Eagle Church their home. So hopefully his face is increasingly familiar to you. So I'm so grateful for Kurt, his friendship, his leadership. And as he opens the word to us this morning, let's put our hands together and welcome him back to the stage. Appreciate it. I feel like I got my official welcome into the Eagle family by going to the DR with the young people. And I just want to tell you, if you're a parent of one of those young people that went to the DR, they did an exceptional job down there. One of my favorite stories was one of our young ladies who's sitting right over there uh, telling the Dominican con uh, concrete workers how to do their job, and then they looking at her without language, making sure she approved of how they did it. That was pretty, pretty uh, fun to watch. God picks men and women to use in his mission to reach the world and to disciple the responsive through unusually ordinary people. It's like the story of the entire book. It's the story of many of our lives, that God looks for the ordinary, and he calls them into his mission, which means that this entire room is on the list of people that God desires to call into a life with him and into life on his mission. Engaging in God's mission is always about things of eternal significance and kingdom growth. Sometimes it shows up in the big moments like Mount Carmel when God's guy faces off with the prophets of a false god. Sometimes the mission is going next door and sitting in a lawn chair with your neighbor so that God can build a relationship through you to have an eternal impact on them. Elijah and Elisha seem to be two of these fairly ordinary guys. They're prophets to northern kingdom Israel, serving in the midst of a land where the kings of the land did not follow the Lord. And so God chose to use these guys to advance his mission in the midst of the Israelite people whose kings were failing them miserably. Last week, Eric preached from the life of Elijah. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Elisha's name means my God saves. These two guys are like a walking gospel presentation. Like the God of the Bible is God and this God saves. Right? If you don't know anything else, next time you have the opportunity to share your faith, start there with these guys' names. Elijah lived a life on mission with God, and he stood for the Lord in the face of great evil. He was a real man. He had his ups and his downs, but he stayed faithful in following the Lord. Elijah's life ends with him finding a successor, a guy named Elisha, and then God taking Elijah in a chariot of fire, leaving Elisha left there on the planet holding Elijah's coat. You can picture this guy like a little kid trying to wear dad's suit or dad's shoes. The prophets of Jericho, scripture tells us, are watching him. Northern kingdom Israel is watching him. What will become of this young man who now carries the mantle of the great prophet Elijah? 
Well, it turns out that this guy, Elisha, begins to collect his own stories of God doing incredibly powerful things. And I'm going to rattle through a list of them for you, and you can go read the context later. But he starts out by turning the city's bad water into good drinking water. You want to see a cool video? I have a friend in India who just had this happen. They prayed over a well that was not fit to water the, the plants with, and now it's drinking water for an entire community. I got an exciting story of him sharing how that all went down. Next, Elisha calls down a curse on the guys who jeer him. And if you remember the story, a bear comes out and mauls 42 of them. Third, southern kingdom of Judah and northern kingdom of Israel have come together to defend against the king of Moab. Their armies are out in the desert. They have no water. Elisha gets involved, says, dig trenches, dig reservoirs. God's going to fill it with water. God filled it with water and not through rain. Fourth, there's the widow's oil. This lady's husband is dead. The creditors come. They want to make this lady's sons their slaves to pay off the debt. And Elisha tells her, go start collecting the empty jars that you can find. And not just a few, Scripture says. And God filled them with oil. Then there's a barren woman whose son, who had a son after Elisha's prophecy about her. The son dies. Elisha comes, raises him from the dead. Then there's the death in the pot story, then the feeding of the hundred men through a few loaves, then the healing of a guy of leprosy, and then the crazy story of the borrowed axe head. And Elisha gets involved, this thing falls in the river, and the thing floats to the top of the surface. And then there's the story that I want to look at with a little bit of detail, just so you can see some of the context of the kinds of things going on in Elisha's life. It's the story of Elisha telling the king of Israel about the movements of one of his enemies, the king of Aram. Like Elisha is this walking GPS on where the king of Aram is and what he's up to. And the king of Aram says, hey, who is it that tells Elisha everything that happens in my bedroom? Like they, he knows all the details of my life. Second Kings chapter 6, just listen. That guy says, go find out where Elisha is. So I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. By the way, names and places in the Old Testament. Julia, grateful for your Old Testament expertise. You get to, to tell us how to pronounce all these. So go ask her. <laughs> I'm just going to read them quickly. So the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded this city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You probably know the rest of that story. Elisha then, uh, blindness comes and he gets the people and leads them into Samaria, the capital city of the very people that they were going to go to war with. God delivers them. You get the kind of picture of Elisha's life and how God used this vessel to do incredible things. God's power moved through Elisha and the nations took notice. 
I believe there's a whole bunch of us in this room who want to see God's power at work in our lives. Not just so that we might have a little bit better life and get all the things that we might pray for. And not just so that we can leave the world a better place than we found it or so that we can right a few wrongs. But so that countless men and women and children experience the relationship transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they go from lost people who are separated from God into a relationship with the Father through the Son. We want to have an eternal impact. We want to see Eagle Church turn loose on a desperate world in desperate need of a Savior, the Savior that we know and love. Our schools need Jesus. I have a five-minute activity for you. If you don't believe me, go at like 3.40 and sit in a high school parking lot. Just watch for five minutes. I'm embarrassed to tell you some of the things I've seen. Not from Eagle Kids. <laughs> Our neighborhoods need Jesus. I don't know about your neighborhood. I do know about my neighborhood. This community needs Jesus. We certainly want to see our kids love and follow Jesus. We want to see our friends love and follow Jesus. We want to see people who are stuck in sin finally experience the, the power of God to deliver them out of that sin. We want to see our church move forward in advancing light into darkness and hope into hopelessness. In short, we want a double portion of what Elijah had, right? Just like Elisha asked for. And so we take our lives to God. And we ask God to fill us with himself and to use us in this world. At least we do this corporately when we're gathered here. Dan just prayed that for Julia. That God would use us, that this community would be transformed because we go out on mission with Jesus. And when we leave this place, we believe that Jesus is already at work out there. He is at work in my neighbor's house because they're still home right now. They're not in church. Yet something doesn't seem quite right. Because the impact that we think should be happening, for the most part, isn't. So what's going on? We pray for it. We believe God wants it. What's missing? So I dug a little deeper in Elisha's story and discovered something that I think we should all consider. In the midst of dead people being raised and abundant oil showing up and fresh water coming and massive armies being dealt with, we skipped over a very important moment in Elisha's life. The moment when he was found and called. The moment where it all started. The moment where something fairly significant and fairly simple took place that led Elisha into a life of power with God that led to the abundance of transformation that took place all around him. I want us to consider Elisha's call this morning. Most of Elisha's story is actually found in 2 Kings, including the double portion of Elijah's spirit conversation, the moment that Elijah is taken away in a chariot of fire. Yet if you go back a bit further, you find another encounter, one that leads into a place of introspection about our own lives. Elijah has just been told to go and appoint his successor, a young man named Elisha. And I want to read out of 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 19. 
So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? I think this is the moment that so many people sitting in churches all across our country have probably missed out on. They've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But they missed this moment. When Elijah showed up, he didn't find Elisha in the school of the prophets. He wasn't running around with the religious crowd. Elijah shows up and this guy's out working the farm, plowing a field, doing his normal life stuff. And the call of God through Elijah placed on his life was about impacting his regular existence. Here was a man who made a pretty good living. He came from a wealthy bunch. How do I know? Because he had 12 pair of oxen. You ever played Oregon Trail? Even the banker can't buy 12 pair of oxen. <laughs> Nobody gets that many. Verse 19 sounds like they belong to Elisha. And Elisha was working one of the pairs of oxen. Elijah comes along, he throws his cloak on this young man, and Elisha knew what that meant. The mantle was being passed to him, and so he left his oxen to follow the call. But first he says, let me go say goodbye to mom and dad. And that is not the same story as what Jesus talks about in Luke 9, where the people are full of excuses. Hey, I want to follow you, but let me go bury the dead first. Hey, I want to follow you, but I need to go back to mom and dad for a while. In other words, I'm going to delay my obedience. Here, Elisha just wants to honor mom and dad and go kiss them goodbye and be on his way. Elijah responds to him, though, in a very unique way. Go back. What have I done to you? And I have to admit, I had to read that many times over and think through, what on earth are you doing, Elijah? Did you give up that easily? Like your kid just said, no, I'm not cleaning the room. Okay, guess don't clean your room then. That's not what's happening here. He's making it clear that Elijah is not forcing Elisha to come. As if to say, I'm not making you do this. In other words, the calling is not a forced calling, it's a volunteer or volitional calling. I think it's the same with us and Jesus, who will not force you. So we have a choice to make. Many choices to make. We make a choice of what we will do when God shows up and invites us into something. Now, let me be very clear about this. There are steep consequences and ugly fruit that show up in our lives when we're disobedient to the Lord. This is not flipping a coin. Nevertheless, God is looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. So we ask the question, is Elisha's heart fully devoted to the Lord? Verse 21, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is the moment. 
This is how Elisha makes it clear that he is wholeheartedly ready to follow and to do what the Lord wants him to do. He's all in. How many of us are trying to follow God and to do what he has designed for us to do and to do what he has called us into, but we just can't seem to part ways with so many other things that seem to be the priority in our hearts and lives. To be clear, God's call for everyone in this room is not to enter vocational ministry. Please don't do that. Please don't all go off to Bible college or seminary. God has placed you scattered across this area and all sorts of work environments and neighborhoods and third places for you to be on mission with him out there. God's call is not for everyone to sell everything and move to India or Africa. Like those are your two options. Either do exactly what you're doing right now or sell it all and move to Africa. Those are not the only two things on the table. God's call is not for everyone to quit their jobs. Though he may be calling some of you to quit your job. But for Elisha, the work on the farm with the oxen was not to continue. And he made a radical move in the name of obedience to the Lord. I read this story. I have a feeling that I would have been pretty tempted to do a little side hustle on this thing. Like sell the oxen. Make a little money just in case this God thing doesn't work out. I remember sitting with a young man one time and he said, Kurt, God's calling me into ministry. I'm going to go to Bible college. Praise Jesus, how can I help you? Well, my parents want me to go get another degree too just in case this one doesn't work out. Let's start there. Might have rented those oxen out and get a little steady stream of income coming in, right? It reminds me of the list that we used to see posted on bulletin boards in college. Young people, this was before Craigslist. You had to actually write the stuff on a piece of paper and stick it somewhere. And people would put, well, let me just back up a little bit. God would convict them of the music they listened to. And they would make a big deal about how they were going to get away from this music they had on these little round things called CDs. And then if you paid careful attention, you'd notice that list of CDs showing up on the bulletin board for $2 each. Right? I went to a couple of those young guys. I was like, wait a minute. The Lord asked you to like quit listening to this stuff and now you're going to sell it so somebody else can listen to it? Not Elisha. Not this guy. He knew in his heart that God was calling him to leave it and leave it he would do. And there wasn't a side hustle on his way out and he wasn't going to hold on to the edges of it and he wasn't scheming for how he could follow God and keep doing everything else that he had been up to. He slaughtered the animals. He used the yokes for a fire. And this man threw a party for the community to celebrate the invitation of God. I haven't seen that very much. People with a longing to be called by God and a mission with God and then loving it when the invitation comes. Instead, what seems to be more common is the leftovers of life. If there is time left over, then I will go. Then I will engage. Then I will pray. If there is money left over, then I will give. Then I will be generous. Then I will share. 
If my kids aren't too busy doing everything else imaginable that I can come up with, then they'll be involved in ministry. And the vessels that people present to the Lord for him to fill often don't look anything like Elisha's life vessel, which was emptied. Ours are often still quite full. And this is where the problem comes. We see the 12 yoke of oxen. They represent our thing, our accomplishments, the stuff that we've accumulated. We see those on one, one side and we hear the voice of the Father inviting us into more life with him on the other side and there's a choice to make. I read this quote somewhere a while ago. I don't know who said it, but unfortunately our quest is often not for contentment, but for more. <clears throat> when we consult our flesh, we choose poorly. Those who are controlled by the pursuits and ambitions of this world will not say yes to the invitations of Jesus. They will be men and women and young people of excuses, of delays, and of blame shifting. Someone else will always be at fault for whatever is undone or lacking. So here's our question. What's in the jar of your life? Or said a different way, maybe with a picture on the screen, what are you holding behind your back? That thing that you won't let go of. That part of your life that you refuse to let God into. That act of obedience that you have procrastinated on for years. That relationship that you know needs to go, but it's too comfortable. Maybe too enjoyable. That thing you justify and hold on to for dear life. That thing you pursue... Because the whole world around you pursues it. And you can't stand the idea of being left out. That attitude or political stance or public perception that you will not allow God to speak into or to change or to soften. And please don't think that I just said half of this room needs to consider that and the other half is good. You're holding it behind your back as well. That hurt or sin against you that you will not forgive. What's back there? Do you know that God already knows what's back there? Do you know that when God called you to follow him, he knew what was back there? Do you know that when God the Father sent his son because he loves you, he knew what was back there? So you might as well bring it out here, right? And take a good look at that thing. The stuff that we're holding on to the pursuits he didn't ask us to chase after, things he never wanted us to pick up. Eagle Church. By the way, do you know who Eagle Church is? It's us. It's now me. I'm a part. And I brought my family too. We've been here for over a year. We are Eagle Church. Eagle Church family. Do we have anything behind our back? We say, God, you could do whatever you want except you can't touch or go, or be, or... And maybe we make it so that God can't show up if he wants to. You and I need to ask him what's back there, and then listen. He's not hiding from you. He's not giving you puzzle pieces that if you can figure out the mystery, then he'll talk to you about it. He's eager to tell us what's behind our back because he's eager to free us from the constraining nature of our flesh. And the things that we hold so tightly to that are actually killing us. They're actually ruining our lives. 
So are you willing to get it out from back there and show it to God and ask him to help you deal with it? Many years ago, I was with a gentleman. He said, if anybody wants to travel with me, let me know and you can come. And I was like, hey, I want to go. He'd been talking about all these incredibly cool things going on in the nation of India. And I said, I'd like to go just see it. I'll carry your suitcase. Okay, you need umpteen thousand dollars by this date. And that's the young pastor. My wife is a young school teacher. Umpteen thousand wasn't a thing. And I was in my office praying about this. Lord, what do you want me to do? I don't have this money. And the Lord said, you do have this money. It's in your retirement account. I had started a retirement account when I was pretty young. I kind of got off to a good start on that thing. And I distinctly remember saying, Lord, I don't know how to get that money. And I think there's a penalty, but it's on the table. That very moment, and by that I don't mean five minutes later. I mean that very moment my phone rang. One of my elders. Hey, Kurt, on the road, don't have time to talk. Just want to let you know God told me to tell you not to worry about India. Got to go. And I was blown away. And I learned in real life what happens when you bring that thing out from behind your back and you say, Lord, I, I can't even figure this out. I need your help. But there it is. It's yours. It's available. But it's going to cost you to let it go. And if anyone told you otherwise, they misled you. Elisha, it's going to cost you to come on this journey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer does a bunch of teaching on what he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, meaning he's right here right now. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is to hear the gospel preached as follows. Of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. The main defect of such a proclamation is that it contains no demand for discipleship in contrast to costly grace. Elisha, you're going to leave the comforts of home. You're going to leave mom and dad you're going to join this new calling on a life in the midst of a time when Jezebel is hunting prophets to kill. And she's going to hear about you pretty quick. You will likely be invited into moments that will cost you. Oxen sacrifice moments. When the world around you is going to look at you and say, that looks really foolish. Why are you doing that? When your portfolio or career advance or status in the community might take a hit. When your flesh is going to get told no repeatedly. When your schedule gets reoriented. When your opinions get choked out by God's truth. When the pursuit of your personal rights gets checked by God as he helps you live as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. So Bonhoeffer goes on, costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then friends, there's a celebration. There's a party. God you mean you looked across the, the whole landscape and you chose me? 
You mean that in the eternal stuff that you're up to across the cosmos, you've invited me to participate? God, are you telling me that that lawn chair sitting over there empty next to my neighbor is an invitation for me to go over and see what happens if I try to have an eternal impact on that guy's life? Rather than sit on the sofa and watch this TV? That was about three weeks ago. Jesus said, there's the lawn chair. Go get in it. (laughs) Wait a minute, God. Me? Yeah. And there's a celebration. There's a party. Because we don't want to spend our lives on stuff that won't last or doesn't matter. And we don't want to live as slaves controlled by this finicky, fragile, whiny flesh. But we also don't want to move forward in obedience with mourning and sadness. Like we just asked our kids to unload the dishwasher. That's a moment at my house. (laughs) Nobody has gotten excited about that yet. So I want to end with Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, that's process, that's a process word. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what God has done so that you and I can hear the invitation of the Lord into this good work that he has created us for. Elijah and Elisha were powerful prophets who saw God do powerful things because they were men who made themselves fully available to the Lord. Last week, Pastor Eric invited us to see where we land on this map of Elijah's life. And I wonder how many of us found ourselves not only in a place that we're not so thrilled about, But we got kind of worried that we're actually stuck there. Like this might be what defines me for the rest of my life. Today is a day of invitation for you to pull your hand out from behind your back and take a good look. Ask Jesus what to do about it and then listen. And friends, check your hands often because we have a sneaky way of reloading. It's likely that repentance, your heart turning from, is in order. Maybe there's a phone call to make. Maybe you need to start a fire. Maybe you need a trash can. Maybe you need a friend to walk with you through this. But you certainly need a quiet place with the Lord to ask him, Jesus, what do you see back there? And what are we going to do about it? He'll join you in that. He wants us to be free from the stuff we're dragging around so that we can present every empty jar, and not just a few, every empty jar we can before him. Lord Jesus, we probably can relate with the psalmist who recognized my feet had almost slipped because I looked at the world that I live in and they all look so happy and they're wealthy and they're healthy and their lives seem to go so well. But then the psalmist said, Lord, that he entered into your house and he saw you and he saw the destiny of this world and the pursuits of this world and concluded The earth has nothing I desire beside you. Jesus, may that be true of us. 
that we'd find no need to hold anything behind our backs because we have you. But we would not crowd our lives and our schedules and our budgets with so many things that the world brings to our, our plates so that we crowd you out so that there's no room for you in our lives, but instead we pull our hand out from behind our back and we say, Jesus, what do you see and what are we going to do about it? How can we offer it to you? We recognize, Lord, that some of that stuff you want to slaughter and some of that stuff you want to throw away. Some of that stuff you want us to give away and share. And some of it, Lord, you want us to hold on to. So, Father, would you speak to us that we might be men and women like Elisha who present to you an empty vessel I said, Jesus, would you fill us up and see fit to use us in incredible ways that your gospel will be made known, that people's lives will be transformed, that those who respond to the truth will be discipled, that your name will be glorified. Would you make yourself known through us? We pray in Christ's name, amen.